And we're live. Welcome to another week of the Questioning Commission. Damn, it's good to be back. As always, I'm joined Finally. by... My name is Gonzo Pumulo. It's a Sunday, another good day to be alive. This week, we have a guest. Going to let her introduce herself. Guest, please introduce yourself. Hi, uh, my name is Vitamelo Papani, and it's good to be here. Welcome to the it's Questioning Commission. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Yeah, man. yeah, I'll kick us off. I'll kick us off. I'll kick us off with a bit of, of sad news before we get into it, you know, like Dumi's work, what she does. And sad news, this past week, outgoing Auditor General of South Africa, Kim Mkhoi, who passed away due to lung cancer. He lost a battle. This is a man who served the country with pride, distinction. So condolences to his friends, family, and colleagues. But yeah, sad news aside, you know, feelings involved, obviously, not that I'm being heartless or anything like that. Let's move on and get on to the business of the day. Excellent, man. I think, you know, I thought we'd just do an icebreaker uh, with our guests before we hop onto the news, you know, get her home so that she can join in and engage, you know, questioning commission is all about engaging and so forth, so forth. So to yeah, me, yeah. I pose this question to you. Tomorrow okay. you become South Africa's female, first female president. Mm. Besides mm. Zuma, besides Zuma, I feel like she's already president. <laughs> uh, so let's say second female president. And um, you walk into power. What are the first five things you do? Five things. Okay. Um, I'm not going to say legalize marijuana because I feel like everyone is expecting that from me. But <laughs> let's sidestep that one. I think... My biggest concern would be like decentralizing local government. So making municipalities less powerful, for instance. Yeah. Um, and then um, maybe have individuals run for local elections um, mm -hmm. instead of having political parties. I mean, that way we can see the factions. Like even now you can see there's issues within ANC, but to the public, it's less apparent. Maybe if we had that, that could happen. Like if we have individuals running it would be like a way to make it more obvious that there's divides in the party um free education free education i think if we had the abilities or the resources to make it happen i think that's one thing that i'd really want to look into and i think maybe promoting rural development in a way that's not just looking at mines and, and, and agriculture, because I think that's like the primary focus when it comes to rural development and it just reinforces urbanization. So it doesn't really help much. And then was that four? Was that five? You had four. municipalities, you had individuals, okay. you had um, rural areas. I'd say then, uh, I think maybe subsidizing agri the agricultural sector because right now as it stands south africa's agricultural sector doesn't receive a lot of funding from the government so maybe if we could have more subsidies for farmers um that would also like improve like food security in terms of like stabilizing like mm. produce prices so you can't go into the, like even now if you think of COVID-19 the prices soared because of the crisis yeah but if we had subsidies on agriculture it would help with that yeah so I think that's why <laughs> that's why awesome 
Yeah. Uh, so, as always on the Questioning Commission, we first delve into the fuckery of the week. Uh, so, Quinzo will say, uh, bring up a couple of news articles I'll bring up. And then feel free yeah. to just engage and hop on at the end. Um, and I think without further ado, let me just tackle into it. something crazy that I saw this week. Um, so it's the RCEP. Um, for those of you that don't know what that is, it's basically uh, 15 countries have formed uh, the world's uh, largest trading bloc, covering, ne- covering nearly a third of the global economy. Asia-Pacific countries from the world's largest trading bloc. Uh, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RCEP, is made up of 15 Southeast Asian countries, as well as South Korea, China, Japan, Australia, and New Zealand. The pact is seen as an extension of China's influence in the region. The deal excludes the U.S., which withdrew from a rival Asia-Pacific trading pact in 2017. President Donald Trump pulled his country out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, shortly after taking office. The deal was to involve 12 countries and was supported by Mr. Trump's predecessor, Barack Obama, as a way to counter China's surging power in the region. Negotiations over the RCEP lasted for eight years. The deal was finally signed on Sunday on the sidelines of a virtual summit of the Association of Southeast and Asian Nations hosted by Vietnam. I found this quite fascinating, you know, uh, with Biden being elected and, you know, this idea of American nationalism where it's America first. And I think that nationalism in itself has kind of shot America in the foot in a sense, you know, they've claimed to be one of like the world's largest economy and so forth and so forth. And they idea, the decision to withdraw from this agreement, you know, um, is going to put them on the back foot. You know, we saw what, uh, for example, in Australia with the decision, uh, China's decision not to import from them. And then, you know, the consequences and effect of that, you know, I feel like yeah. it's foolhardy for any nation to withdraw from trade agreements. I mean, look at how the UK is going to suffer from bre- uh, from leaving Brexit, you know. We're going to see, the, there's going to be ripple effects, you know. You can't have your cake and eat it. And I mean, to I, I think it's stupid to uh, the idea that you can act on your own in the world. You know, everybody yeah. needs something. You know, um, so I think it's foolhardy, and it's going to be interesting to see how Biden reacts to this. If he's even if he even survives the four years that he's in uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in uh, presidency. So I uh, like you know this this the other eight years in the making. You know, and yeah. I the, you know it's just like Europe. You know, they don't want if UK said fuck you and they didn't want didn't want them to join, like decided to leave the EU, how is America going to build bridges? You know, the damage has been done, you know. Uh, so how mm. do you force yourself in, you know? China's taking over this deal, you know. So how do you combat that now? The floor is yours. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Interesting times, you know. And especially the rise of China has been problematic from a Western perspective. But then it's been good from a Chinese perspective. And we've all seen how China tried to manipulate and infiltrate the South China Sea, Taiwan and other countries that border the South China Sea, trying to impose themselves on those countries. But then for me, the problem or the concern or the question to ask here regarding this trade pact is China's relationship with Australia, which it did bring up, right? So Australia, India, Japan and the US, they have a relationship of military cooperation. It's called the Quad. 
now they're doing this in order to counter the rise of China in, you know, in Asia. But now the thing is, you can't have, as you said, your cake and eat it. You can't, so now you can't have an opposition to China where Australia is opposing China, Japan is opposing China, and India is opposing China. And on the same end, also trying to have trade relations with China as well. So that balance, how that's going to work and look, it's going to be interesting to see now because we've seen my Pompeo traveling around the world during these you know, testing times, trying to form more agreements, cooperations, relationships with other countries to counter the rise of China in, in Asia. So for me now, as you said, with Sleepy Joe coming in, you know, Joe Biden, Camilla Harris, you know, our favorite, favorite communists and all those things. But, you know, with them coming in, and we've all seen like hints of Biden being China, China friend, friend, friendly. So it's going to be interesting to see how America tries to enter this deal because now there's also implications for them as well because the Chinese market is quite big for Apple, American brands and all these other things. So yeah, interesting times ahead. I think this does throw the cats amongst the pigeon in terms of how the quad will balance their military work against this economic background. But then, yeah, Dumi, what do you think about this? Well, I don't think, I feel like everyone understands China's like progression like right now in the same way that we understood the US. So whenever you're trying to be hegemonic and you're trying to be a superpower, you're going to have some backlash. And the only thing that I'm seeing in the difference in approach, especially with different presidents as they come in, in the US, is that the US moved to more nationalist approaches towards like Trump, Trump's like coming in. So slowly and slowly. So even Reaganomics was that kind of thing. It was still kind of talking about that conservative ideal of having money within a particular group of people. And when Trump came in with populism, it was like, this, this is amazing. China as it stands right now has no concern over the people, right? And how it squashes, we all know this, It ha how it squashes like descent or like, yeah, the weakest, you can see it clearly. So it has no concern for democracy. And because of that, how it looks as a social actor is not necessarily in a good light in the same way that America was looked at. So I think it could go either way, but for me, it just spells war because there's constant like ideas and, and reports of China, like, like putting minority groups into camps, into like, I don't know, into, it looks like sweatshop styled camps, but you could see that yeah. there's a clear ethnic element to it. So I don't think China has a good political standing in terms of democracy. But econo economically, like people are looking at it as a as a key player. And with that said, it's still like, yeah, but at the flip side, you're doing something wrong. So it depends. I don't know. It's going to be interesting how things turn out. But I think it's going to it's going to lead into some conflict and it's already starting. Yeah, yeah. Interesting times ahead, like in terms of especially now with the background of the coronavirus, you know, where this podcast came from as well everything seems to be changing, it's, it's, it's shifting ground. But then, yeah, let's move us on. I'm gonna bring us back to the continent, but 
to a different country to Ethiopia. Something you guys probably missed. Hope you didn't miss this. But then there's conflict in Ethiopia and people are dying by, yeah. by the boatload, you know. And it's quite sad to see this because the president of Ethiopia was given or awarded the Nobel Prize last year and this year starting war. So it's, it's well, civilian war, civil war. But then this is an article from The Guardian and it reads, the title reads, both sides in Ethiopian conflicts are killing civilians. This according to refugees who have been fleeing to Sudan. So I'm just gonna give a rundown of the article as I normally would. And we can just talk about and tell what you guys think. So refugees fleeing the conflict in Northern Ethiopia have claimed that both sides are committing atrocities against civilians and described hospitals as struggling to cope with the casualties. And now remember there's also the problem of Corona. So capacity is a problem generally speaking. Amnesty International reported on Thursday that scores, possibly hundreds of civilians were massacred with knives and machetes in a town south of, in a town south of Ethiopia, the town of Humera. Amnesty International said it had not been able to independently confirm who was responsible for the killings in Maikadra last week, but witnesses reported that forces rolled to the Tigray People's Liberation Front, TPLF, which is in power in the province, were responsible after they were defeated by the federal forces, the EDF. Ethiopia's Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, launched military operations in Tigray after he accused the local authorities of attacking a military camp in the region and attempting to loot military assets. The TPLF denies the attack and has accused the Prime Minister of concocting the story to justify the offensive. Yeah, Chase, what's up, man? I actually saw this article, but it was a, it was a different article. So it goes, uh-huh. Ethiopia leaders of the Tigray region admit they attacked neighboring Amahara. So, uh, yeah. yeah. It's different sides. Different sides for story, man. But then I think in, th- in this case, the Prime Minister would definitely, Ebi Ahmed would definitely deny launching the attacks. But then for me, I think there's some substance in believing it could possibly launch the civilian attacks because we've seen how he, ha- how he has been towards Egypt and the neighboring countries in terms of the Nile Dam because we know how that might affect like water supplies and vegetation and all those things. And it's been really not forthcoming and trying to negotiate these terms. We've seen the US trying to engage and negotiate to try and bring about better terms for everyone involved in, the, in that matter. Because if that goes wrong, if that goes wrong, it's affecting millions and millions of hectares of land, firstly, and also affecting millions of lives and livelihoods in the process. So I think there's substance in believing that he could have actually started these attacks. So the article further reads, airstrikes and ground combats between government forces and the TPLF have since killed hundreds and raised international concern over the willingness of Abe, Africa's youngest leader. He's, the guy's 44, guys. He's all this Macron, I think. I hope he's not married to an old woman who won the Nobel Prize last year to risk a lengthy civil war. So according to this, more than 11,000 Ethiopian refugees have crossed into Sudan since fighting started in, and humanitarian organizations say the situation in Tigray is deteriorating. For me, it's quite interesting to have a, a case whereby there is in a sense like two military forces in a single country. So you can see now there's the National Guard, then there's the Guard of the province. It's quite baffling for me to see the existence of like two forces in one country. And more so in these forces are working on the opposite ends, fighting each other in the same country. It's like the, the, the case of Catalonia in, in Spain. So let's imagine Catalonia had its own military, then fought the Spanish military in Spain 
it's it's baffling. But I don't know what you guys think. This guy gets the Nobel Prize last year. He's killing civilians this year. It's going down, deteriorating, as they say. Uh, it's quite interesting because uh, in that exact same art, in that arg, um, article, uh, it says that the the leaders of the Tigray um, basically they admit to uh, launching rockets into two airport areas, um, and that they killed two soldiers and up to fifteen were injured. And they said that they're looking to attack Eritrea. And if you remember, Eritrea is. Um, a landlocked country. It's quite interesting yeah. how, you know, um, w- what that dynamic is going to be because, you know, Eritrea relies on everybody because they are landlocked. They mm. they can't get any supply. So eventually you're looking at, just imagine um, they decide to shut down Eritrea. There's, they could starve them out. It would be a siege, you know, in a sense. Yeah. So, you, you know, uh, we, we applauded him. He got the Nobel Peace Prize for starting talks, but he's back again with mm. that bullshit. And I think it's, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's trying times, you know, when yeah. we've seen that across the world, you know, the moment people are uh, pressed up against the wall, we see them starting to react and uh, racial, ethnic tensions, anything start igniting again. And that's why we see this kind of tribalism, you know? Yeah. And uh, tribal... Uh, to me, come on in, you yeah. know. I think that. I mean, yeah, talking about those ethnic tensions, like for me, when I was hearing about US involvement in this, like when the US takes sides, especially in conflict in Africa, it's always usually the case that it takes on a, a more anti-Islam Islam, Islam kind of stance. And in the, in the case that's happening now, it's the same exact thing. There's a particular group of people with a particular group, like religious understanding of how the world should work. And yeah. the US has its own ideologies around Islam and its attack against Islam. Islam. So even when it's entered into those things, who it funds is also a question. And when we're mm. talking about people launching missiles and doing those things, these weapons come from somewhere. These weapons yeah. come from somewhere. And this is not a discussion that's being had. And I think there needs to be more of a focus on the kind of Islam, like the, the focus on Islam on Africa, because we see it encroaching. I mean, Mozambique is like not too far away and we can see the same exact things happening there. So like no one's talking about the encroach of Islam. And as well, it's not like these kind of militant groups are coming from nowhere. These groups see what's already in there. So maybe they're seeing some kind of gap within the power structures, some sort of like decline in governance that's resulting in people looking for other ways of governance. And in those ways, they see that nations of Islam are like, okay, like, okay, maybe this is a possible way or solution, but yeah. I mean, if you look at it, the rise of radicalism uh, stems from the idea that there there was a hole there was a vacancy and they stepped into that void, you know. A lot of radical groups are opportunists, you know. You mean look at yeah. um, you look at Afghanistan, how uh, the Taliban formed the faction, and then once they decided they didn't really want to be in power and they couldn't set forth their agenda, Al Qaeda stepped in. The same way we see that ISIS took over Iraq, then Iran, because they, there was stability and uh, instability. I mean, that's why they stepped into ISIS, and so forth. It goes with Mozambique, right? 
um, Mozambique suffers from a low uh, um, employment rates and so forth. And there was a lot of disputes in the municipality area, you know, especially in the region where um, ISIS has taken over in Mozambique, right? There was instability, uh, government instability and everything. And then they stepped forth in that place. And that's where ISIS stepped in. It's also, the you look at it, they wanted to make money. I mean, the total fields, that's, they wanted those gas fields mm. uh, in Mozambique. And that's why they stepped in. So they're op opportunistic. And I think, you know, it's quite interesting that you say that um, we mentioned how the U.S. is getting involved. And I think that... Uh, you know, that agenda, the ver that very anti-Muslim agenda is very set within the U.S. foreign policy. That's why we see them supporting it. And I mean, if you just look at it, it shouldn't matter what religion. If they're an asshole, they're an asshole. But I mean, we we need to st stop looking at it like on ethnic and religious guidelines. Otherwise, we will always, you know, Matt, uh, Leviathan states that it's Matt, uh, I think it was Hobbes, it was like man's innate yeah. nature is to fight. And I think that's why we entered into the social contract. I mean, the social contract is we give our power to the government and they'll protect us. And I feel like where the government fails to uphold the social contract is where we see man resorting to the primal instinct and getting involved and fighting and the moment people start fighting, it goes falls down to race, uh, gender, so forth. I mean, that's what we see, right? It's going to sound controversial, but I mean, you look at what happened this week, for example, in Brackenfall, but the whole matric dance and all the fuckery. And I mean, I just want to preface this, that both sides were wrong, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the people that organized it, they were fucked fucking stupid i don't know why they would do that i mean we're living in 2020 you know you can't be doing that shit but that being said the eff was also wrong you know you know my i think i spoke to you about this quinzo in the week right i i understand if it's two adults fighting right but you don't go to a school right and you disrupt children right they're under the age of 18 and you want to disrupt them no wonder the parents are upset and coming there to fight the EFF. I mean, if, for example, yeah. just imagine the EFF were protesting out of your daughter's crash, right? You'd go over there and you'd fucking raise hell, you know? And yeah. I, as your friend, I'd join you because, I mean, the child did nothing, right? <laughs> so if the, if the EFF have an issue with you, Gunza, they deal with you. But I mean, the, yeah. the, you don't have to. And I mean, you look at it, it's matric exams, right? These children don't need any, I mean, the year's been chaotic as it is. They don't need any more disruptions or any kind of fuckery happening. So, I mean, yes, there needs to be uh, the parents or the organizers of the event need to be reprimanded. But I mean, yeah. to disrupt school and to, you know, this is a university, you know, where you can just fucking cause riots and stuff like this is young children, you know? Yeah. I don't know. The panel is yours, guys. Yeah, man, it's it's one of those things, you know. It's for me, like most issues of, of like race and violence, always problematic because I think I say this every time we speak about violence, that this country has a history of violence, and we've seen the success of violence in this country. From conquest, we've seen the success of violence or the threat of the use of it in obtaining quote unquote what some people call freedom and democracy, whatever that looks like. But again, we have seen that violence works either for or against. And in the case of Brackenfall, in the case of Ethiopia, this is a failure to use democratic processes to try and achieve the desired end. It's the resort to violence 
in trying to achieve your end. And the problem with the violence is you might achieve your end, but then when you do achieve the end, what state are you in, in terms of your infrastructure, in terms of your social well-being, in terms of the social fabric? What happens there? Because now that there's this, you know, this backdrop of, of violence and this whole back and forth thing, even if they start talking, there's going to be tension. There's going to be hard feelings. You know, this one guy was beaten up so bad he had one eye open. So if that guy's invited to speak and say something, how would I <laughs> I'd be angry. So like having having violence as a starting point doesn't really tend to work well. But then, yeah, man, it's violence. It's, it's there. It's with us. I think we can drop violence there and move on to our guest. You know, let's not spend too much time, you know, focusing on violence and violence on violence. Our case is all about peace. She loves peace. She loves African people. She loves them. So yeah, I'm gonna allow guests to just tell us about herself, her work, and yeah, the rest, everything we need to know about her, really. So I would... <laughs> I'm just still laughing at the fact that Quinza says I'm about peace, but okay. <laughs> Are you not? <laughs> I mean, I love the people. Too bad that the people don't love each other. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, but tell yeah. us about yourself, though. Yourself, your work, what's up? What's interesting you at this point in time? Well, um, what, I suppose you could start with how did you get to the point that you're at now? Like, ooh, geez. Okay, so <laughs> I think my biggest like turnaround was when I moved all the way from the Val in Verenigen uh, to, <laughs> to Cape Town. And I mean, I had always knew that I wanted to write, but I was just always in the wrong field. And then I just got to academia and I got to like writing essays and saw that I have a passion for it. And I was like, I don't know, in second year, I think that's when I first met, well, I met Quinzo in first year, but I met Quinzo again in second year when our like, journeys aligned and we got the chance to actually join into like this foundation. And that's where it sparked more ideas about justice and social justice, especially when it's tied into like the skewed dynamics relating to race. So um, I think after that, I became more aware of my position and possibly what I could do. And I found myself writing more and more about my understanding of political participation. And I think that's where my research has come to now. So um, in terms of political participation, we understand it, for instance, as voting. And that's just generally how it's seen. And I think that's in the African context, because of apartheid and this idea that after freedom, after colonial liberation, right? After apartheid liberation, voting is supposed to be that thing that says you're free because you're able to exercise, I don't know, your, your opinions about the things in the world. But yeah. then it ended up being the, the problem where our people became too focused on that as an idea of liberation. And even though we were a strong like community of protest, you could still see that as long as people exercised their vote and voted for, in most cases, a particular liberation group, and that's for the whole of Africa, they would see themselves as having a form of democracy. And in a more tangible way, 
democracy isn't about that democracy isn't about citizens just voting it's about citizens being more connected to the politics and it's about representation for instance right so when you're represented you're supposed to have an opinion but because most people don't have opinions they just do blind voting and legacy voting and that's what we get in the case of south africa yes, so yes. that's what that's what my kind of focus so yeah my current research um is about political participation especially as it relates to a concept of informality so what are the informal ways that people engage in, in po political right for instance you can take land grabs or just people putting up a shack because in our society we've kind of normalized a person living in a shack we don't see how inherently political that action is because number, number one you're defying state you're defying law just by putting a shag on state property or on just vacant land right and on top yeah. of that there's an understanding that it's a source of empowerment it's a source of you attaining some kind of democratic ideal that people strive for we look for equality and part of equality is having shelter for instance right and people don't necessarily now take a person putting a shack up in any given place as a political action it's so normalized in our country that it isn't seen as it so i'm kind of looking into different ways of inform informality that can speak to forms of political participation so can informality be another mode for political participation, especially for Africa? Yeah, interesting work they do me. It sounds complex. It sounds beyond my intelligentsia, as some people say. But for me, like, I just want to get your thoughts before you move on. Your thoughts on the land land issue in Cape Town, because we've seen all these cases of land grabs in Cape Town, people being pulled out naked from their shacks. We've seen the Occupy Camps Bay thing. There are different sides to that story. We've seen like a number of things, because for instance, in the case of Occupy Camps Bay, right, they were told to leave by day X. Then when they came back from court, they said they don't have assistance from the city in terms of getting housing. So now we have issues whereby people grab land, then when the state tries to intervene and give them like housing in line with states or provincial regulations, then they say, we don't want that assistance as we saw in the case of Occupy Camps Bay. So as you said, right, land grabs, shags, Occupy Camps Bay can be seen as other forms of political participation, ways of defying the state. But then how does the state react in a case whereby they're trying to help, but the people don't want the help. They want to do as they please. What happens there? Should the state then, like, it goes back to the issue, can the state now then use force? Or should we just say, hey, it's just part of the process. It's a shag, another shag. It happens. What happens there? I think we need to then understand why people don't want to be moved where the state wants to move. So, yeah. for instance, there's a particular case right now that's happening right, where people have been moved to certain areas, like far, far, far from, like away from the city. And that's a yeah. big problem in Cape Town, right? Where, yeah. for instance, there's this, a group of people, a social movement, right? Hashtag RTC, Reclaim the City. I had mm -hmm. the privilege to work with them last year and a bit again this year, right? Mm -hmm. Now, these people occupy land. 
they occupy mm-hmm. old old buildings like derelict buildings like in 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 very well sought after very coffee 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 store you know bookstore vibe kind of places where yeah. you see the hipsters where you see these kind of european ideals of the city right and they go into those places and then the city will come to them and tell them we have a place that's set up for you right we can move you that side but what ends up happening is they send people far away from places of work where there's actually opportunities like there's actual opportunities there and they take them far to the outskirts into cape flat styled housing if yeah. not it's just very flat and very gridlock rigid very strange yeah. it doesn't feel like a home it feels like almost soviet union like it's very yeah. strange kind of housing right and people are being moved there this on top of the fact that the transport system in cape town is not accessible like people don't mm. want to use public transport right mm. you put you putting people far from the city and then you're saying no they can travel to their place of work which is usually white areas right mm. and you're putting them in those locations knowing very well that the trains don't work and process doing like corruption and putting railways that don't match the trains and you're knowing this and you're doing all these things but it makes like this disconnect between state's efforts and yeah. the kind of things that happen on a local municipal level um uh, to me i just want to ask you a question like i understand that but like where do you draw the line in terms of opportunism so like yes there's certain people that don't have access to housing and so forth and so forth but like if you look at the campspay incident right that was in my mind that was just pure opportunism like they had a party the money ran out and they didn't want the party to end and they stayed there i mean what where do you stop the line like we all want to be in like uh comfy places closer to the city i mean everybody wants to chill on the beach at camps bay like so where do you drop the line draw the line and say listen here we understand that but we have housing over here you know you it, it's a whole barrel of worms because you look at it like people invest money into so obviously into land right uh it's one of the safest investments you can get right so you invest money into land and that is your property right so you know if you have the money to pay to stay in that area and then you know you you somebody can't just come sit on your land for example and i get that uh, a lot of it stems from like apartheid era stuff and so forth and so forth right when we won't tackle get into that can of worms or that rabbit hole there right but i mean if you look at like for example camps bay i mean that's just foreign investment there so how do you say okay cool we need to give that land to the people when you look at we south africa as all well, especially in covid times we need foreign investment we need foreign money into our thing so where do you say where do you decide to draw the line and i mean yes for example craverton and the situation transport situation in cape town is uncomprehensible and there's a lot of fuckery with prasa railway railway lines and stuff like that. but it's a it's a combination of factors and i i don't know do these of rtc do they understand that it's not just a combination of factors and not just giving people lands and in these hip areas you know it's like everybody needs to come on board and there's a lot of factors that need to go into board like what is the their way forward and 
how do you differentiate between just opportunism and like uh, government protest? I mean, I think where I draw the line personally is an understanding that Cape Town is historically a place of displacement, right? So even in the apartheid era, people were displaced, right? Currently, as it stands, it's the same kind of thing, but instead of race, it becomes like money, capital, right? So like what you're saying, like what you're saying, if someone, if you have your land and someone just sits and comes in and takes your land, it's the exact same thing. Why cannot we use that ideology to understand those people's perspective? Because the people, for instance, at Reclaim the City aren't people that are like just poor people who just happen to show up and want a place to stay. They are people who lived in areas such as Woodstock, Salt River, Observatory, who lived there for long times, had family homes, lived there for a long time. But see, the housing policies and the kind of rates in that area and the policies that municipal governments have neglect any kind of, I don't know how to say this, a way for people to live there sustainably. So what you then find is that people will be in their communities happy and living in their grandmother's house for a very long time, right? And then rates come up. Rates come up and they, this is a way for the city to push people out and make it a bit unbearable. Yeah. Another problem is that you'd find that local convenience stores will crash. But on top of that, like a shop right checkers would just close down and they put skyscrapers, right? For me, that's inherently a problem for a so-called social democracy. If South Africa wants to claim that it's a social democracy, it needs to then address these kind of housing issues because you can't say we're social democracy, but as soon as capital comes, you're thinking investment for at the expense of the people you're supposed to give this kind of, who are supposed to benefit from the social democracy. If we're saying redress, we need to understand that redress also means that the people in Cape Flats were there for a reason. Yeah. And the people who are moved now in Woodstock and Observatory are there for a reason, mm. right? And yeah. if you're gonna put housing policies that neglect an idea of redress, it, it's very contradictory, but then you still wanna give someone a 350 at the end of the day, or like a, four foot, or, or a 440 and think that it's gonna be something. Yeah. It makes no sense. Like South Africa has an issue with distinguishing between domestic and international agendas. And that's my issue with it. Yeah. For me, what you speak of reminds me of the situation in Boca because we've seen like in Boca the number of protests throughout the years where they're contesting, you know, the gentrification of the area. And we've seen how like around Boca the prices of living have been rising day by day, crane by crane, you know, floor by floor of each new building. The prices keep rising and now they're trying to push out probably I'll say the last community of normal people that are not like high owners, you know, that live in the city. So it's going to be quite interesting to see how that's approached because I know a couple of months ago last year, I don't quite remember, Minister of Arts and Culture was once the Minister of Police, I think, you know, he was a cop, then he decided to sing, but that's not the point. He decided to declare Book Up as a national heritage site, something of that nature. So it's going to be interesting to see if 
that declaration can stand the test of foreign money because we've seen a high inflow of German money into Cape Town, especially like Camps Bay, Sea Points, Green Points. There's been a high inflow of German money. It's going to be interesting to see like when the Germans once broke up, they want it. It's German money. But I want to go back to something you said. Yeah, yeah. Say something to me. What's on your mind? What's on your mind? I was just, I was just wondering what makes a heritage site. I mean, why Boka? There's so many other communities. <laughs> like for me, it's kind of like a, it's it's a questionable issue there. But yeah, yeah go on. <laughs> I think it's just something symbolic, just to make the people feel like they actually, you know, the government is doing something. Like something seems symbolic. very selective. Seems uh, very. Yeah. I think uh, heritage site. Uh, if I can just jump in, so anything that's older than fifty years, you can't knock down. So I think it's anything from uh, 1940, 1950, that still stands. You can't knock that down. Uh, that's deemed as a historical artifact of sense. Yeah. So you, so you can't knock our parents down. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to miss. The funny part now that Chase is saying that there's a place, I'm trying to remember the name. I'm not familiar with Cape Town that much, but I think it's called Betenhacht Street or something. Very posh area. Very like, I don't know, it does, it looks like Cape Town Center, right? And mm-hmm. it's very developed, very modern. And Chase is saying you can't tear down these places. But what happens when these places become sites for white leisure? Because that place in specific was a Cape Quarters. It was called Cape Quarters, where the Malay, where foreign nationals, slaves, all these people used to lump, used to be there, <laughs> doing all these things. And those people were moved. And now you can still see the cobblestones, the structures, everything being kept. But it's like a boutique. It's like, and the same people, the, 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 the people whose ancestors this were like they're in Cape Flats. Like for me, there's that disconnect where we want to keep things and there's a nostalgia, but that nostalgia is very colonial and very problematic. Yeah, yeah but the, the, the funny loophole is that like, so you can't knock it down. So for example, I don't know if you've ever been to uh, Honest Chocolate, right? So it's it's like a, it's a boutique a sense, but the halls are made out of are old. So, you know, you can add a new roof and a new paint, but you can't knock down. That's the thing. Uh, but like, you know, th- 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 that's where it stands. And, you know, you need to pay context to uh, South Africa and the history, right? It's a unique history. I don't know. I don't know how we'd be here for years chatting about how we would divide up the thing. But I mean, it's like saying, okay, cool. We need to knock down, uh, give the Cape, the castle of Cape, Cape Hood, good up to the Khoi people, right? I don't know how you'd do that. Like, if, we, if we're going to talk about it, how do you give the castle back to the Khoi people? Who, who specifically will you give that to? You can't knock down the castle because it's, it's a national monument. So, like, just think about it in that line. How do you give the castle back? If you, if you have the answer to how you give the castle back to the people, because then there'd be disputes you have to give it back to the Dutch people because they built it. But I mean, that's the thing. If you if you're able to answer that question, then I think you'll be able I mean, to. How could we give it back when a lot of the population were killed? So that's my one issue. And a lot of the history was killed with it. Like for one, like Cape Townians, especially certain ethnic divisions within Capetonian colored people and Kosa people deny that kind of ancestry. 
So you need to deconstruct their understandings of identity, even give them anything. But on top of that, it's like, you can't be nostalgic for a place where these people used to live and then presented as Cape Malay, for instance. But then at the same time, the same people you're nostalgic over and the culture that you're nostalgic over is being oppressed in the contemporary, in the current. Like for me, that's my issue. Like you can't, it's like cultural appropriation in the worst way, because now it's like, it's not just in the media, it's in your everyday life. You're walking into a place and it says old biscuit mill. It says old post office, old what? Why is it old? Nothing old is good in South Africa. Old is very problematic. Don't be yeah. nostalgic for a vintage time group and it does sound the psyche because then it's a cool place to be in. And I mean, it does look cool, but yeah. at the same time, you're just there like there are issues tied in. Yeah, for me, as Dumi says, like history is problematic. And I think what we've seen being done like recently is instead of like taking down the walls that used to house, you know, the slaves, the Malays and all those people, we're now seeing the monetization of history. So you're now using this old and these stones to bring in tourists and say, ah, oh, you know, some slaves used to live here and, 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 and. But Chase, yeah, what's up, man? Do, do I don't know, to just tie this all together you know um history brings in money right and that's the uniqueness of every country right people travel like for example this is the thing americans travel to south africa because they want to see table mountain they want to see the safari they want to see that and they want to see the history you travel to place to learn the history right and i know it's going to sound harsh right but like when i went to cambodia i went to the killing fields because that's the history I went to the genocide camps. I went to the torture chambers. I went to all of that. And I mean, I'll tell you, it's the most somber thing ever. And like people in tears all the time. But like you go to learn the history of people. You go to the cultures and the stuff like that. Like I backpacked Asia and I only ate Asian food because that's what I'm there for. I want to experience the culture. I want to learn about the history, right? It's the exact same thing. Like if you go to Germany, you go to Auschwitz, you go to like as somber it is and as, as many people go, you go there to learn. And I mean, there's that saying, if we do not learn from history, we are doomed to repeat it. So I think in that whole, I don't think we can forget that side of it. You know, people bring you, you know, your history makes you unique and that's what attracts tourists. So I don't think we can ignore that facet of the argument. Um, no, I definitely agree with you, Chase. I definitely agree with you, Chase. But you're also saying you're learning, right? You're learning something. A lot of people don't know about the Cape Quarters and what it means, right? So that's my only issue as well. It's like, you you like the aesthetic, but not the history that comes with the aesthetic. I mean, a lot of, I don't know if you, is it Truth Cafe? There's a there's Truth Cafe right now that's in that same street. And in that place, I don't know, during, it was in 2010, with, during the World Cup, before that, they, they erected the Rockefellers at Rockefeller Hotel. While they were excavating, they found bones, like of slaves, right? And activists said, stop, stop, stop. We need to actually find a way to memorialize these people. They didn't want the building to continue. 
But what ended up happening is that they, they, they exhumed the bodies, they took the bodies out and they put them in a, what do they call it? I don't know the English name, English is gone, but it's like a, a, a preserve kind of place where you put these bones in. Yeah. Those bones right now, you go into Truth Cafe, a coffee shop, and you will find in the back of the coffee shop in boxes, cardboard boxes, the bones of slaves. For me, that's like what's happening. That monetization of, of history, that's kind of skewed. That's kind of a problem. Yeah. I, it's, yeah, such as this country, right? That's why we live here and you have this podcast to try and dissect and discuss all these issues. But there's something that I want to go back to that you said earlier. When you spoke about social democracy, that we have a social democracy. Now, in what you sent us to have a look at, you spoke about consensual democracy and popular democracy. Now, because this is a, it's an, it's an audio kind of media, media can you just give us a difference between social, consensual, and popular democracy, if you could? Okay, so social democracy would just be about addressing like justice issues, right? So you'd have more taxation of a particular group so that you could have equality and the money would go to towards like the, 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 the well, in South Africa, the majority poorer population, right? So that's what social democracy is. And that's how South Africa is actually understood globally. I think we have that narrative that says South Africa is a social democracy because taxes go to these people and people are getting benefits from the country in comparison to what happens in the USA where it's such a huge thing to think of um, Obamacare, for instance, right? Like here, it seems as if social democracy is a thing and i argue it's not the case but that's that's another topic mm -hmm. and then you have consensual democracy so consensual democracy is a form of what they call participatory democracy where people are participating in democratic practices and it's on the basis of consensus where people have discussions where people talk their issues out and reach an agreement and debate and in doing so you get an agreement that's like an understanding of other perspectives right and you can discuss it with people and and it, it, it reduces conflict and i think for africa that would be an amazing thing yeah. and that's the distinction between the two yeah okay so for me okay first things first like social democracy I understand you say it's not really quite a point and i think it's not a point necessarily because we've seen like the rich being able to maintain a large sum of their wealth but then i think in our case as well like south africa specifically speaking it's not the case because one our government mismanages the money and two the number of people are employed it's quite it's quite small it's like 10 million compared to like 11 million people unemployed so even trying to balance the tax base against the needs of the people because now i saw that they want to make that 350 grants permanent possibly make it 500 rands a month for people between the ages of 19 to 59 studies show that might be between 179 billion to 210 billion rands a year which we don't have who they just gave us 18.4 billion rands they need four more billions so it's it's out of the picture but i want to go to the idea of consensual democracy where you say 
people participating in democratic processes, you know, this conversation, there's, you know, engagements, what works for you, what works for them. And I remember encountering such an idea in philosophy, I think it was second year with the idea. I don't quite remember, it's been, you know, been a while, been there, done that. But then I remember encountering this, encountering this idea of democracy whereby everyone participates. And you feel like this might be what Africa needs to aid most of its problems. But then honestly speaking, right, from where I'm sitting, the implementation of this, how would this, how would this look? So would we now then be community level to municipal level to provincial level, then to national level? How would it look? Would it just be like each province has an idea for its people or what it thinks it might work for its people, then takes it to a national level, you discuss, then you find a way forward. Then what happens if, let's say, the Western Cape disagrees with the Northern Cape about, I don't know, anything? What would that look like if there's like disagreements? And how would you then level up the different opinions that exist in society? So the question is twofold. How do you level up the different opinions that exist in society? And how do you find ways forward where there are disagreements? I think an example of consensual democracy not working, um, I think it was Zimbabwe. Um, I think the ZANU-PF led a kind of constitutional reform that was based on like, like politicians or like data collectors going into different communities and having discussion forums and all these things happening. And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a success. It, it really wasn't a success. But that is also tied in with the fact that as a liberation party, you want to keep power and the corruption that comes with it just kind of collapse the entire process. So I think trying to bring that um, to the rest of South Africa, for instance, or the rest of Africa, would be more of a problem, like you were saying. Mm. Um, I don't necessarily think that, I mean, theoretically, that's what they say, that it yeah. would be beneficial. But I don't necessarily believe that it, it can be implemented on a, I don't know, a, a, a national level. This comes back to my, if I were thing of realizing municipalities right so yeah. if for instance we had wards we have wards like right now right mm -hmm. in those wards decisions need to be made for whatever this like whatever thing that needs to be happening a policy or whatever that policy a consensual understanding or a consensual approach to it might not only promote less corruption within the local municipality or the ward, a specific ward, right? And you can have a general kind of framework or like a goal that provincial or the local municipality or the national agrees upon, but on a consensual level, the local municipality is responsible. There've been a lot of cases where they've shown that like actual active citizenship in Nicaragua, they did the exact same thing where it was actually like, there were signs that it was working. But when you think of political interest, and I mean, these old people need to die. I'm just ready for, for these old people to die. That when you yes. think of them still being, <laughs> mm. when you think of 
people how they want to attain power and keep that power for their own selfish needs you know that these kinds of things won't happen but i'm 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 hopeful <laughs> i'm very optimistic that like when you usher in a new generation people are going to start like trying to envision politics and governance in a different way and currently in europe it's happening people are kind of debating ideas around nationalism even they're debating yeah. ideas around like centralized forms of governments and national identity trying to break these kind of boxes that politically were put in and these are the same boxes that create conflict that create competition and corruption so when we start then breaking away these boxes where it's like a more consensual type of agreement that's when you see that there's possibly like benefits for the for the future especially in africa because we need to be having dialogue and instead of voting because i think voting is a key issue because not only do they rig the votes people can't express why they're voting for specific party because there's a reason and that reason usually gives you an understanding where it's like people are afraid people have other agendas and when you start having that dialogue then as a nation you can begin to kind of unpack it and start understanding what the way is to move forward and make people more cohesive as a group and we can't do that for me in my opinion in voting especially not the way we do it in South Africa. Um I have a question in regards to the whole social democracy. Do you think we have the young people for it? I mean, I think that, that that's where it stems in, you know. As Sipo said it last week, you know, we they say that they don't want young people in power because um, they only attain a certain amount of wisdom when you're 50, 55. That's that's what he said. And I, I feel like that's, that's the mentality that's holding us back, right? And I think that I like the idea of social democracy, but in reality, when you look at the situation of South Africa and the politics and the factionalism, you know, that that's where we we come at crossroads, you know. Um, and I think that's the problem of having a liberation movement in power, you know. We, you know, I don't think we've learned our lessons. I mean, you look at Mahatma Gandhi's party, right? They were the ruling party. Now they're no longer in power. They've died out. Same with Kwame. Yeah, his liberation party is not in power. And slowly but slowly, I mean, the more we go down, the more we'll see that there's a rise. In it. And I mean, you speak about Europe, about the rise of it. But it's also, you look at Europe and you look at people are, oh, fuck, it's going to sound harsh. But I mean, people are educated in a way that they realize that this is wrong. You know, I think we we are so clinging on to the ANC as the liber this liberation movement and that the be all and all end all and they'll save us from, you know, um, racism and all the hardships and they're gonna bring about reform. But I mean, I think we still so set on it and that's why NC keeps winning. I mean they fucked up for the last 20, 21 plus years that they've been in power, but because they ended apartheid you have to stick with them and i think we don't we haven't unlocked that level of education or mindset or acknowledgement that listen here we need to usher in a new wave you know i mean if i could tomorrow i'd start a young party and we just have people 
under 45, you know, we'd have that party and, you know, we'd bring new blood in. And I mean, there's a there's a lack of, you know, Quinzen and I speak about, there's a lack of reading in the thing, you know. People aren't willing to read and discuss and fix the issues, you know. We keep talking about it over and over, the same issue over and over. And I mean, I mean, that the inability to call out people within the movement is, there, is what, breeds it's given a breeding ground to corruption i mean that's why there's so much corruption because the moment you call out the nc then whether you're black white indian or whatever you're deemed a racist you know and that's the that's the harsh reality of the situation you know uh you could be purple and they'd call you racist if you call out the nc because the history behind them is that they're a liberation movement and i don't think we've made that switch that you allowed to criticize somebody for doing wrong and it doesn't have to be a racist discrimination issue, I think. Um, but yeah, it's quite interesting, you know. And I, 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 the reason I got you on the podcast was because I saw your uh, stories on Instagram about you sitting without uh, water and electricity for a couple of months. So if we can just dig into that situation, what is going on? And, you know, let's just try to bring some light to it because, you know, we, our follow base is slowly rising and maybe we can make something happen you know maybe we can highlight the fuckery that's happening so that more awareness is raised to this issue yeah i think you're right about the awareness part of it i think even though these things appeared in the news i mean i i it's like it appears as a segment and you don't see it being repeated in in the like like the peak time slot when news is actually a thing for people like seven o'clock or something like that and people don't know what's happening and especially in the kind of obscure parts of south africa where there's not a tourist touristy kind of i don't know in, industry happening or people aren't like focused on it politically so in areas like ferienachen which was historically i mean ferienachen means the union it's it's a very important historical place but because it doesn't fit into the nationalist narrative of South Africa, these places are forgotten. Even places like Free State, same things happen here, right? Where people are forgotten. And that's where you find things where it's like the, the kind of arguments. I feel like if conflict were to occur, it would either be in the cities or it would be smack in the like obscure parts of South Africa where people don't even like notice because that's where corruption happens the most right in my case i mean <laughs> i was in cape town enjoying lights and water thinking things were fine for me and i used to get calls from my parents and they tell me no it's been four days we haven't had electricity five days we haven't had electricity and they tell me these things and i think geez maybe it's a, a load shedding situation right? Maybe ESCOM is having one of its issues. And I thought it was ESCOM because usually when you get these things, your, your, your initial blame is ESCOM. It's a South African thing, right? So when I got home and I actually experienced it and I knew of the corruption, I knew of the things because I, I grew up in a political family. My father was involved in politics. He was a counselor there and he left because he was, I think he was just scared. Because the thing that happens this side, if you're on the side of the, 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 the correct or in the place where you actually want justice, 
you are likely to get killed if you don't want to put forward someone's tender, if you don't want to, like some, if you don't want to do corruption, if you don't want to like take into patronage, you are likely to get killed. My, my dad's parents have, my, my dad's friends have been killed and I've had to watch him cry over friends that have been killed because for instance, a taxi, a taxi boss needed more money or needed roots or needed whatever. And because this person is in charge of this and doesn't want this to happen for whatever reasons, he gets killed. That's what happens. But it's because it's not a place that's kind of, known to the rest of South Africa, especially in the media. People don't really speak about these things. So currently, we're having a very big crisis. Our municipality owes both ESCOM and Rand Water, which supplies us water. I think it's, it's, it's one of the biggest in South Africa because it's located at the, the biggest part of the Vol River. And Cape Town gets, money, gets water from the Vol River. So you can understand how huge like it's a lot of water right and i think the problem then becomes like understanding how how do i say this how local municipality manages funds in a way that's in with the idea that people are going to actually need these things it's like it's people like the corruption here is so beyond human that i don't even understand what's going on sewerage in literally you're 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 walking the side of your house we're seeping because they don't maintain infrastructure they don't do anything you can go without electricity your produce dies and it's like yeah they don't really care is there no governmental oversight or anything like that i mean i know on a national level there's been court cases and things happening and like like discussions about how to address this issue but they still owe they still owe they haven't made payments and the reason why we got shut off currently um i think it went everything went back on as you can see like everything is i'm, I'm using my laptop everything is charged up and the reason it went on was because elections were coming up and i don't know what deal they brokered i don't know what deal they brokered with with escom but it was even very fishy that escom would allow this at the time where we like people are becoming more politically aware and as soon as elections come it's like okay now we need to move and now everyone has electricity mind you people don't i mean it's very the way people get service delivery is very classist and it's something we need to admit to and the language that they use in the media and in when the spokesperson speaks, for instance, would be that um, higher lying areas would not get water because of the pressure, for instance, right? Higher lying areas, these are the townships. It's so weird because I'm like, oh, so all these areas are higher. I'm very confused. Lower, okay, I'm not sure what's happening. But then it's your townships. It's Sharpville, it's Sibuk Gang, it's all these places, Everton. All of them would not get water. And it's not even just in a moment it's 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 occurring i've had to deliver throughout my life water to my sister's house to my grandmother's house even recently we had trickles of water still water it was coming out the pressure was low but that's because i live in a suburban area they don't have anything it's dry completely dry and you find that the places that still have water 
our air is like zone 10 in Zbuki, which is a very wealthy, very, very wealthy part of the hood. So you can already see that it's very class-based and we don't have these dialogues as, a, as people here. And intervention coming in is, is not there. Even right now, the discussion is not about what's happening on this level. It's about, no, we need to take ANC out. We need to take ANC out. DA should get power. Yeah. Is there, um, sorry, has there been any talks about like refusal to pay rates and everything now? I mean, I remember there was a, there was a segment on carte blanche where some rural town or so, the municipality had fucked off with money. So the citizens took upon themselves to uh, fix the, the sewage and all of that and took it upon yeah. themselves and they refused to pay the rates because one, they weren't being provided. So they fixed wind turbines and so forth to make it, to get electricity for themselves and the people, you know, the community stepped up. Um, so as they've been talking about refusing to pay things, because I mean, you pay rates so that you can get electricity and water. And if you're not getting it, then by that, you shouldn't get have to pay, you know? It's funny that you say that because <laughs> the spokesperson, including our mayor, um, who was on a, a quite a number of talk shows and, and radio shows and whatever, he was saying that people should pay because in paying, they would actually be able to pay ESCOM that they owe, right? So don't, don't stop paying because we owe ESCOM, we owe Randwater. That was the understanding. But at the same time, people were saying, but what happened to that old money that we did pay? What happened? It's like, you're not addressing the corruption that initially led to you owing. And people did like make attempts. Like I know people stopped paying for a, a, a while as this thing was happening, but I think now it's becoming a thing where they are more interested in paying ESCOM directly, paying Randwater directly, where they don't want to include the local municipalities. And it just comes to back to the idea of decentralizing the local mm. municipalities, where it's like if people can actually access these, these people who provide these services or access some kind of way to pay them directly, it would really limit the corruption in these kind of areas. And I don't know. I don't know what the discussion is going to look like, especially with the elections coming up next year. I don't know locally because the thing here now, it becomes a very DA-centered thing because we have another municipality, Midval, that's close by, and that is predominantly DA. And things seem to be running smoothly. But at the same time, there's a place called Sekailo, which is like Midval's Kayalija, where you say that things are running smoothly, like in a place of Cape Town, but you kind of ignore everything else happening in the periphery. And that's my concern when we're saying Midval should be, like DA should be here and all these things, like we're still not going to address the people in the periphery. So in the suburbs, I will, I'll probably never get my electricity or, or, or water cut. But what's going to happen in the hood? Where Sipukeng is one of the largest um, townships that we have in South Africa. It's, it's, it's up there with Kailicha in them. But we're not having these discussions, right? But I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, interesting times, interesting times. But... <laughs> It's, it's quite sad to see all these cases of like crippling corruption because 
the people who suffer, the people on the ground, you know, it's the common citizens, you know, Ace and his friends, when they sell money for asbestos, you know, they, they move to Gauteng, they buy Bentleys and Ferraris, they live in luxury and all those things. And right now, to the left of my screen, I have this article where ESCOM says there's a possibility, and I'm sure your municipalities included here, where they could dump 92 municipalities into darkness if they fail to pay their electricity bill towards ESCOM because there was this case whereby ESCOM was taken to courts for cutting electricity for Pioneer Foods. The, the, the ruling was Pioneer Foods is a client of the municipality and should not take ESCOM to court within the municipality. So I just want to check if like, what, what cause you've told us about how citizens are trying to stand up against this. And Chase mentioned the case whereby the, the people in a particular municipality decided to stop paying rates and take matters into their own hands. And obviously now there we see a, a combination of public, the, the people and private, the businesses within the area trying to you know resolve the problems that arise within the area. So in, in your situation in Farinjeng, is there any participation from private businesses, you know, people actually suffer the most financially from all these, everyone suffers to be honest, but then for a business you suffer, you know, profits and damage to property, damage of stock and whatnot and whatnot. So is there any like action being taken by private business in trying to address this matter? Look, from what I know, I haven't seen them speaking out. The one thing that I've noticed, like I was saying, it's very class-based. And the area where I'm situated in, it's very industrial. Like you can see that it was a steel community, like fighting steel community back in the day. It was, it was right there. But because of modernization, it's declining. And it's very dusty. Like, honestly, it's a very dusty place. I mean, I love the place, but it's honestly very dusty. And in terms of private interests, there's not much going on this side, right? There's really not much going on. You see farmers, but because the farmers aren't like too big of a large scale that they can filter into the residential areas, like my suburb, even though it doesn't seem like one in some cases, is quite rural. Like opposite our house, it's just the felt and it's someone's farm, right? And that person, is, is a resident of Solon Park, but because there's a way, I don't know how they do it, but I think it ties in with what the US was doing in terms of voting, where they, what do they call it, gerrymandering, where they're kind of cutting in communities to get certain things happening there and not in another section. So what you'd find is that in a farm area, they'd like, it's in the same, community or suburb but in the more farmy area more kind of moneyed side of it people would get water and electricity right and it wouldn't be an issue for them so they wouldn't even participate so what you find is that the middle class are the ones that are actually speaking up and they're doing something physically right mm -hmm. in the hood people are protesting in the hood that's what's happening. They're protesting just in the hood, burning down, like burning tires, blocking roads, because there's also a road that leads as a shortcut to Joburg. And there's also roads that trucks coming from Durban, coming from so many parts of South Africa pass through. They block those roads. Never mind the fact that those roads aren't even like 
you don't get potholes being fixed this side. There's so much happening on this side and it comes back to informality where you get guys just like Majita coming and filling holes themselves and putting out mm. cans or like cups, collecting rands and, and notes and whatever, just because there's a gap in governance and private interest is not visible in any of this. In fact, like I was saying, middle class, white people, black people, when to the mayor's house, they opening. He's like, I don't know about what's happening. I really don't know what's happening. There's really no kind of collectivization from different parts of society, from private interests. It's it's a very it's a forgotten place, honestly. There's little investment and the places that are kind of being developed are right at on the Val River. And this is where even Julius Malema is noted to say that when, when people are corrupt in the Val, they go get a place next to the river and you can see it. So that's where the lights are on. Everywhere else, nothing. And is it just because your mayor is corrupt? Is your municipality corrupt? What is like what? Is this a recent issue or has it been on you going? And then that's the first question. And, okay. and then the second question is, what, what's your COVID cases being? Because, you know, one of the, the, the ideas was, well, the one way to prevent COVID was always wash your hands, wash your hands. And I mean, you'd think that during COVID now, there'd be a push from government and the ANC, listen here, we need to get our numbers low. Uh, we need to give everybody water. I mean, that, that, those are the one of the main things. I mean, especially in Cape Town now, like with like at the various townships, they pushed more water because they were like, listen, water is way, one way of combating COVID and so forth and so forth. So you'd have seen, made sure there was people with water, you know? Mm. Especially also now I mean, that everybody's at home, like, you need electricity and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, okay, let me answer your first question. I think when it comes to the mayor being corrupt or like this is an ongoing thing like this isn't something that happened recently i mean the mayor became mayor from my knowledge last year and he inherited a lot of these issues because even our previous mayor simon mufoking that man is known for his very high levels of corruption and it's not just like in the mayoral positions like I can't, I don't know how to explain this without giving you guys an example of how corrupt this place is. You can't go into a like traffic department to get a license and not think of corruption, right? You know that no, someone, someone, some somehow money's money must be paid to someone. And it's so difficult to get it the right way that people are just of the opinion that I need to pay. And that's kind of how it is generally. And even to the extent where the citizens themselves are corrupt, it's not even just on a, an official level. How, I don't know how many people have their electricity pinched. I don't know if you guys know the term, but to slow down your meter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or stop it. Or stop it completely. I'll stop it completely right mm. people do that because the kind of 
corruption here is so normalized and it's entrenched. Like when they were talking about Izinyok, I was like, yeah, no, I live this life. Like people steal cables here. It's a thing that happens. It's it's not even like things that people think of as it other. And in terms of like, I don't know how to explain the COVID crisis, but in terms of COVID and washing hands, government said it was going to give us Jojo tanks. And that's the number one thing it says when there's some kind of water crisis, immediately Jojo tanks. We're going to talk about Jojo tanks, but they don't understand how social Jojo tanks are. You go to a Jojo tank, you open a tap, other people have been using them. Mm. You open the Jojo tank, it's, you, you touch the tap, you you fill up the the, the, the place, the, 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 the bucket or whatever, and there's a line. You, it's a social thing. Our COVID cases look like they aren't that, but people are dying. I've heard of quite a number of people just in my immediate community that are dying and people who are saying that they might have COVID. But because there's really no testing here, mm. like there is, I don't even understand what's happening. We could, I think, I think I'm kind of lucky in that regard that you just get up, get get through life not knowing if there's a threat or if there isn't, and you just grow immunities not knowing about anything, and mm. that's just how we operate. It's just like African strengths and tenacity, and you just move and things happen, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I I think the one thing we can possibly take away from today's podcast is that as as much as we may think we live in this great country and this is a point i've made time and again with a number of people that south africa is a shadow of its former self we're not the country we think we are we live in this imaginary world where we think you know south africa is this great country everything is you know haywire like everything's going everything's going okay but everything's going haywire to be honest because if you look at if you look outside of johannesburg cape town Durban and blue and if you like other major cities if you look like where people actually live on the ground things are falling apart at the seams you know everything is just cracking bursting apart and it's not looking pretty and this brings me to the question I want to I want to pose like probably in closing because we've been talking and it's been absolutely fun and you could go on for all of eternity but then your electricity might cut so we don't want to take that risk <laughs> But I just want to go to something you said, whereby you said the people who have money, the upper class of your society, right? they are getting electricity, they're getting water, whatever that looks like. And to me, that looks like a management of the revolution, because if you don't give the people with money, electricity and water, then they're going to fund the revolution. So in a sense, they're managing the revolution. That's what I can see. Because if there's capacity to give this, these people water, then why not why not share these resources equally amongst the people? Just bring in like a truck every day, every morning, every afternoon, whatever the case is. Everyone comes with the buckets, no social distancing. We'll get COVID, we'll get our water, we go back home, we wash our hands. Right. But then the question is, I want to pose is it's about the living situation on the ground, because, as you said, people are not working. You know, there's plenty of potholes regarding potholes. Actually, there's something we spoke of the other week where this other guy in Durban, his area had potholes. What he did he was planting banana trees in all those potholes as a form of protest. So at least you're getting a two for one. <laughs> you're getting kind of a two for one. But I just want to check, like, how is the living situation on the ground? Because, as you said, 
it's an outlying area. There's not much focus or attention paid to the area. So obviously it's going to be now all these food problems. Then you put in water, you can't even cook your food because cooking food is cheaper than buying like a cooked meal, to be honest, right? So now you, you don't have a job, right? And you don't have water because you can use fire, okay? Not that you should, but then when push comes to shove, you will make means, right? So you don't have a job and you, you don't, we can't even afford food. So how's the situation on the ground in terms of, of crime? How do people make ends meet? How are things socially on the ground? <laughs> that's, that's a very important question. Like, I like that question so much. Um, in terms of crime, there's, there's, quite, there's quite a bit of it. Um, on a small scale, on a large scale. Um, I mean, I don't know. We've already been robbed in the house. And just a few months ago, like, and they do it in a very sly way. Someone just comes to your house, says, I'm going to deliver something for so-and-so. Um, and <laughs> that's how it happens. Even while there was no electricity, people were using that opportunity of darkness to steal the lady's Suzuki Swift. So these things happen, right? And... <sighs> I mean, people do steal, and that's, I think that's a South African thing. People do commit crime. It's just inherently very South African. I don't even have an answer or an explanation about that. But people yeah. do make ends meet. The funny thing is, um, we get a lot of foreign nationals with quotation marks um, from mm -hmm. Lesotho, from Malawi, <laughs> from uh, Zimbabwe. I, I giggled because my boyfriend is half Malawian. Anyway, yeah. um, <laughs> and we get them, and when they come, they come with their kind of cultural understandings of labor and sustainability. So, like I was saying, we're a very farm based community. So, what you'll find is people will go into someone's farm, gather up some corn. It's something you see especially during harvest time, gather up some corn and go back to their homes. And it's quite a walk because there's divisions between the suburbs and the hood. So you have to walk up a bit of a hill, right? So you walk up, they, they, you'll see them carrying corn and they'll go back, mow the corn and it's porridge, it's pop, they'll eat, right? Mm. But in terms of the township, township itself, where there aren't in-betweeners, right? Because townships are kind of very city, where they're very mm. blocked and people don't have spaces to do much. People are going hungry. It's a reality. Food insecurity is a very real thing. And I mean, even like ideas about planting things within your own little small corner doesn't really happen as often. So what you find instead is people just becoming heavy alcoholics and rather having a beer a day or like two beers a day, like, um, uh, uh, um, I don't know, I don't drink, but like that dumpy of a, of a cheap drink, like the brown bottle ones. And they'd rather have that than a meal because at least to them, it feels like there's some kind of forgetting about their current reality. So alcoholism is a very big thing, this like very big and it's rampant, like it's just there. And people don't understand that as a social problem. And I think that's the key mm. concern.
Because on top of that becomes gender-based violence, becomes people not being inclined to work, becomes sexual promiscuity. We don't even think about that. HIV levels this side. Ah, dudes, I can't even explain it. And even because people don't have work, women are becoming more giving. Let me just say giving. And Uh the... And, and, and really want to have kids because for, 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 for 40, they want that money, they want that grant. And mm. we're having a large, like it's a very growing, it's growing as a population, especially in the township. So mm. I'm, I'm very curious to see what's going to happen in the near future because at the rate it's going, it does not look good in all honesty. Yeah, I just want to build up on the point you made about alcoholism and people trying preferring no alcohol as opposed to to getting food. I think it's one way to get calories, that's for sure. But then but the joke is bad. I apologize. The joke is, is absolutely bad. It's a bad joke. Okay, scratch the joke. Anyway, <laughs> I want to go back to a point that was made by the Minister of Minister of Police, he spoke about how you know, South Africa is the sixth largest consumer of alcohol in the world, and this leads to crime, and it leads to women and child abuse, and all these other things that happen when people are drunk. And I think it points to, it points to this. It points to the fact that you can't fight crime in, 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 in isolation. So you can't just say you want to stop criminals. Crime is a social thing. So you have to address the problems that help crime to you know, manifest and become what it is. Because saying just wanna arrest people, deter people from being criminals, it's only just one bit of a bigger problem. We need to address the problems or the underlying conditions, this underlying conditions word of COVID-19, underlying conditions that help crime to become what it is. And for me, I think speaking to you, because I also come from a township, but then where I come from, it's a township, but the management is, it's, it looks like it's there because like the roads are paved, the water's running, electricity is there by and large, but there are like township problems here and there, but then it's not as bad as it is in your area. And I think it points to having this exposure to different situations and scenarios because I always think about like people in like say Limpopo, the Free States, Northern Cape, those are areas that no one speaks of. When you speak of Limpopo, you only think about like Bila Bila, right? It's there. We talk about the Northern Cape, we think about Nababi. It's all you can think about, but then there are people on the ground actually living and their lives are hard, they're difficult. And the problem here is it's not just a matter of it's a problem today. The problem will see itself, you know, mutate and find its life extended through generation generation because you're not doing anything to mend the problem. And now if you have a child who's four, five, whatever the case is, they're not getting the right nutrition, the right education, the right values from society, that's a problem. So it's been it's been fun. It's been absolutely amazing. And I think it ties in well with the code tie. I, I tend to do this. I think I'm I think I'm very wise and noble. So I, whenever I think of something, I write a code and you know, I just be like, oh, look at me. So I, I I thought of this, right? And I think it ties in very well with the podcast we had today and the discussion we had. And this thought came to me on the 12th of November at 10.15. I was on the bus on my way to work. And it reads, a failure to hold governments accountable is a failure to take care of the present and the future. That's me for today. Thank you, guys. 
That's yeah, man, uh, that's that amazing. Um, yeah, I just want to say thank, thanks to me for coming on. You know, I think through discussions like this, that's how we build that uh, that foundation of young people, so that we can have a social democracy, as as you would say. <laughs> um, yeah, so I I just want to say thank you, and you know. Um, could you just like highlight maybe uh, where people, if they're interested in your work and so forth, maybe you're active on Instagram. Do you just want to drop that so that they can keep up to date with you? And, you know, if they find you interesting, you know, let's, you know, let's build the community so that we can affect change, you know? Yeah, and just to be clear, interesting in, in, in work ways. So what's happening in Farinya Heng, not interesting in, I'm interested in you, interesting in what work are you doing? What's okay. happening in your area? That kind of interesting. Yes, yeah, not a social kind of interesting, a work interesting. I mean, she did I preface. She did preface that she has a boyfriend. Uh, I don't think yes. your boyfriend would be very happy. I think Harry, right? It's Harry, right? <laughs> yeah. Kappa oh yeah. <laughs> kappa. Oh gee. Um, I mean, I, I tend to stay away from social media. I think for me, it's not very healthy especially because I tend to work with people and being in social media, I'd never get a chance for me to actually be in my thoughts. But um, if you guys want to see work I've been doing recently, you can look at Lockdown Diaries. And that is a project that I went into during the COVID-19 um, like lockdown phase, especially the early phases um, in Cape Town. Uh, in connection with the University of Western Cape and the University of Edinburgh in the UK. And yeah, just Google Lockdown Diaries Cape Town and you should find it. It's an amazing like, project looking at different communities and just how they understood certain policies, how they um, reacted to things that were happening in their communities, how they experienced governance from their perspectives so i think that would be great if anyone wants to check that out awesome i, I mean i think we touched on some meat before i mean we were meant to end but i was like just wanted to know how did you get involved with that uh, how did you get involved with the university in edinburgh and so forth so i have this habit of people just like pulling me into things right um and i think it just comes with like my abilities to engage in different with, with different people in different communities. Um, so I got into contact with Professor Fiona Anciano and she came to me and she said, look, we have this thing that's happening and we'd want to put you in the team. I know you have a connection with different groups in these areas. We want to touch as many people as we can. So we weren't just looking at people that were accessible. Um, for instance, in different suburbs, we're looking at Kailicha in the Cape Flats, in your Woodstocks where gentrification is happening, in occupied um, areas of, um, or at occupied buildings in Cape Town. Um, and we spend, we try to spend as much as Cape Town, even towards Hamburg. So to get a, a thorough understanding, and I think it was quite successful, it was including, um, S.J. Cooper, Fiona Anciano, Meli Dube, and um, Fundo Majola, and myself. Interesting stuff, interesting stuff. I'll be sure to check that out. So just to end on a high note, two things worth mentioning, you know, one, lockdown regulations have been eased. 
I think today's lockdown day number 234. Like the whole year basically it's been a lockdown. And for more important, South Africa won the Newton Prize for Ocean Science and Food Security. So that's a positive note to start the week on. And yeah, guys, stay safe. Don't catch COVID. Check us out. If you can. Yeah. Check us out on social media. Um, mm-hmm. As always, we're on Insta- we're active on Instagram, uh, Twitter. Our email is questioningcommission at gmail.com. Engage with us, share with us, throw us to your friends, throw us to you, your grandmother, wherever. I mean, yeah, you can, you can send us to your mayor. Maybe you'll listen to the podcast <laughs> and decide to pay. Issa. I mean, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> all right, but guys. Yeah, we're on all platforms though Apple, Radio Public, Spotify Google Podcasts Anchor, whatever Catch us there and yeah, stay safe guys Cheers Cheers <laughs>